When I became a believer, I fell in love with the book of Ephesians. It was a place where I set many anchors and a place where I went to often reminded, be reminded of great gospel truths. Do you love the book of Ephesians? It's such a rich book. In chapter 1, we see Paul praise, <clears throat> Paul's praise to God for all the blessings believers have in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, we all know and love verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In chapter 4, the book moves from Christian doctrine to Christian practice, living in unity with the body, walking in the newness of life, putting on the new self created after the likeness of God. Chapter 5, Paul begins to instruct believers how to walk in love, and then comes to the amazing truth that God has designed the one flesh union of marriage to point to Christ and the church. Chapter 6, Paul continues his instruction on children obeying parents, fathers not provoking their children, how bondservants are to walk in love towards their masters and masters towards their bondservants. And then he ends with the armor believers are given to fight the schemes of the devil. But what about chapter 3? I have to admit that I was not as familiar with the content of chapter 3 until I was assigned the task of preaching on the glory of God in the church. And chapter 3 is a treasure. And so I hope you will Delight your heart in God's word as we study together, and it will be a place that you often recur to after our study today. Uh, so I'm going to be uh, reading Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 21. I encourage you to turn there with me. Uh, the main section that we're going to look at uh, as we go through will be verses 2 through 10, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask 
or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church in Christ, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray real quick and ask God for, for his blessing. Father, these are your holy words given to us by your spirit through the, the pen of the apostle. And we ask that you would bless this final session for today. May my words be clear. May I only speak that which is true. May our minds be attentive and engaged and open our hearts to receive these truths. And by your spirit, may we apply these, them to our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We have heard several definitions of glory uh, throughout the different sessions. Pastor Andy has provided many helpful ones, and Brian as well. And I hope to add one more uh, for you guys. Uh, Steve Lawson, in his book, Show Me Your Glory, writes, The word glory, glory represents the infinite weightiness of who he is, who God is. The glory of God reflects the sum and substance of his holy character. It encompasses his divine perfections, attributes, and essence. It includes his holiness, sovereignty, righteousness, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, truth, grace, mercy, goodness, love, and wrath. In short, the glory of God is the display of infinite grandeur and vast greatness. This weekend, as we have spoken on God's glory and continue in this session, we're not only speaking of the display of that glory, but also the experience of his glory, the reflection of his glory, and the praise of his glory. And I believe we will see all those things in today's text. If you'll uh, look with me at Ephesians 3.10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Verse 10 is the pinnacle of this chapter, or maybe even the whole book of Ephesians. The content of the entire chapter revolves around this verse. God's manifold wisdom is put on display through the church, a body made up of Jews and Gentiles. The church is God's chosen instrument to manifest his wisdom to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That is the heavenly host of angels, both the elect and fallen. This is God's ultimate purpose in his design for the church. The word manifold here means multicolored, variegated, multifaceted, and it pictures a tapestry that's being woven together, a tapestry that displays God's wisdom to the heavenly host. Through all that Christ has accomplished and secured, God is weaving together a beautiful tapestry through the message and ministers of the church that magnifies his grace and power in the salvation of Jews and Gentiles that his wisdom is put on display to the celestial powers. The main idea for today's text is take heart, weak and suffering saints. God will be glorified through his church. In this session, I want to ask the question, how is God then glorified through the church? And I hope to answer that as we look at verses 2 through 9. So there are two main points to the sermon. First point is God is glorified through the message of the church verses 2 through 6, and God is glorified through the ministers of the church, verses 7 through 9. I also want to leave you with three encouragements, as Paul does for the Ephesians, from verses 11 through 13. I had additional application points on there, but after running them through with Amanda, this would have turned into a four-hour sermon, so I had to cut some of the additional points out. Uh, We could spend several weeks walking through Ephesians 3. You'll notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, 
For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, is followed by a dash. You'll see that if you're using the NIV version, the NASB, uh, or the ESV. This dash indicates a break or interruption in thought that runs through verse 13. In verse, and then uh, that interruption of thought runs from verse 2 through verse 13. And then in verse 14, Paul picks up where he left off in verse 1. After rehearsing the radical truth that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down between Jews and Gentiles through the work of Christ in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul's heart moves to prayer for the church and prays to God in chapter 3.1. But before he gets there, he interrupts himself and continues to encourage the Ephesian believers with the amazing truth of Jews and Gentiles being one body, and through this new creation known as the church, God will be glorified. And while verse 1 does not tie in grammatically to the section that we'll be studying today, verses 2 through 10, it does provide some helpful context as we begin our study. The letter was written by the Apostle Paul, likely between AD 60 and AD 62, during his house arrest in Rome. Paul was a prisoner as he wrote the letter. And what's shocking here is that he says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I love how John MacArthur says this. Although arrested on Jewish charges, Paul did not consider himself a prisoner of the Jews. Although imprisoned by Roman authority, he did not consider himself a prisoner of Rome. Although he had appealed to Caesar, he did not consider himself Caesar's prisoner. He was a minister of Jesus Christ, bought with a price, and given a special mission of preaching, to the, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He was therefore the prisoner of Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul was a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of Gentiles. He was willing to have his freedom stripped away and even lay down his life for the sake of Gentiles. And these are the people that Paul described in Ephesians 2, verse 12. Remember you, that you, speaking to the Gentiles, non-Jews, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And he further describes them in chapter 4, verses 17 through 20. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul, a prisoner of Christ for the sake of these kinds of people. And in the midst of Paul's imprisonment, his greatest concern was for the glory of God and for the encouragement of Christian Gentiles that he loved dearly. And so point one today is that God is glorified through the message of the church. This will be picking up in Ephesians 3.2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, a clear translation would be surely or certainly you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you as the condition is, is, is assumed as true. The church at Ephesus would have been intimately familiar with Paul's ministry as he labored there multiple years for the cause of Christ in the city. They would have known of the stewardship that was given to him. A steward is one who has been set over the affairs of another. Paul was a servant to God, his master, and given oversight and administration of the gospel. And Paul writes of his stewardship in the first letter to the Thessalonians, if you want to turn with me, there's a little lengthier of a section. 1 Thessalonians 2, and we'll look at verses 1 through 6. As Paul speaks of his stewardship. 
1 Thessalonians 2, beginning verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul was given stewardship of the gospel. It was not Paul's to tamper with or to change, but to protect, proclaim, and perpetuate. This is assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. Of God's grace, Paul is speaking of the gospel here. The gospel is the message of God's grace from beginning to end. Grace is God's undeserved favor set upon those who have not earned it and certainly do not deserve it. Because of the salvation of sinners is only by grace and grace alone, not by human works, God receives the glory. This is the message that Paul proclaimed and it's the message that the church of Jesus Christ must proclaim today. So if you'll flip back with me, if you have your fingers in Ephesians 3, turn back to Ephesians 1 real quick. We're going to do a quick run through Ephesians 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2. Pastor Randy alluded to a few of the thoughts that I had as well here. So Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14 Paul writes of God's grace from eternity past to eternity future in choosing, predestining, adopting, redeeming, forgiving, and sealing undeserving sinners, all undeserved acts of God towards unworthy sinners. What ultimate purpose do you see there that God shows this grace to sinners, to me and to you? Verse 6, you'll see it. Verse 12, verse 14. To the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. The message that Paul had been given oversight and administration of is one of God's grace to the praise of his glory. And then turn over to chapter 2 of Ephesians. Paul writes, beginning in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. If this is how God, God's word describes the Ephesians and how it describes us, then certainly they and we are undeserving of any favor from God. But if we jump with me to verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And then verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one may boast. God makes dead people alive through the work of Christ, not by any of our own work, but by grace. <clears throat> God makes dead people alive through the work of Christ, not by any of our own work. By God's grace, sinners are rescued from the wrath of God, and because it's by grace and grace alone that we are saved, there is no room for man to boast. There's only room for boasting in God and his gracious work towards sinners. 
1 Corinthians 1.31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The message of the church is one of grace, excluding all human accomplishment and merit, and brings great glory to the Father. God is glorified through the grace-filled message of the church. And God is glorified through the far-reaching message of the church. And this comes from verses 3 through 6. Let me read that section for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The far reach of the message is the mystery that Paul speaks of in these verses. We see the word mystery here in the section that we're looking at, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, and then in verse 8. Paul speaks of mystery in a general sense in verse 5, which provides a really helpful definition for us to understand it. Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. And then in verse 6, he specifies the mystery. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. A mystery, as the Apostle Paul uses the word, is that which was previously concealed and has now been revealed related to the things of salvation. The Old Testament, of course, was not absent of the truth that Gentiles would one day be included into the family of God. However, the truth was concealed, but there remained hints in the Old Testament scriptures pointing to the day when the Gentiles would be brought into this family. And several Old Testament texts point to this, but the when and the how were not disclosed. You think of the covenant made with Abraham, Genesis 12, 1-3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house into the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth, even the Gentiles. Or Isaiah 42, 5-7, a prophecy looking to the Lord's chosen servant, Jesus Christ. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you up by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, a light for the Gentiles to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from their dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Sounds very familiar, similar to Pastor Brian's, or Pastor Randy's teaching. Today. Or Psalm 86, 9, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And so many other texts we could look at that look forward to the hints that Gentiles will be fully included in the promises of God. And we have seen this, if you're a member here at Calvary, as we have studied the book of Ruth and Jonah together. God's purpose was always to include the Gentiles into his redemptive plans, but the full picture had not yet been made clear to the sons of men and other generations. But a new time has come in God's redemptive history. The mystery has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. Now jumping back to verses 3 and 4, Paul speaks of the revelation given to him concerning this mystery how the mystery was revealed to his holy apostle Paul. Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, 
as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul speaks of receiving this mystery by revelation, and in Galatians 1, we have Paul's own account of these events. If you'd like, you could turn with me there. I'll be reading verses 11 through 17, Galatians 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Paul, traveling to Damascus, was struck by the Lord Jesus Christ, blinded and converted. Upon his conversion, he traveled to Arabia where he was divinely instructed by God concerning the things of salvation and concerning this mystery that he's going to further explain. Having been instructed by God himself in this matter, the Apostle Paul had great insight or understanding, not an insight gained by man's teaching or wisdom, but a wisdom, wisdom, insight, and understanding that came from God himself. Paul was given insight and understanding that the message of God's grace is a far-reaching message. And we see the far reach of the message in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The gospel is a message that extends beyond the borders of the nation of Israel and beyond the Jews. It's a message to be proclaimed to the whole world, and that is good news for you and me. It's good news for our families, friends, neighbors, coworkers, and community. It's good news for the Solon people of Papua New Guinea. It's good news for the world. Earlier, we looked at how Paul described the Gentiles prior to their conversion in Ephesians 2 and 4. But now, because of Christ and his unsearchable riches, he says that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. So connect in Ephesians 2, how they were previously described, to how they're described now. Previously separated from Christ, now members of Christ's universal body, the church, with believing Jews. Previously alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, now fellow heirs with the Jews. Previously strangers to the covenants of promise, now partakers of the promise with the believing Jews. Previously having no hope and without God in the world, now in union with Christ, the Son of God. And I'm not speaking of universalism. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in and only in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Only those who have placed their life in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ as proclaimed in the gospel and who have repented of their sins are included. Romans 10, 11, For the scriptures say, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Gentiles who have trusted wholly and completely in Christ those from every tribe, tongue, and nation are co-participants with the Jews in their inheritance, in the promise, and members of the same body. So how do these glorious truths, this message, this mystery that fully includes the Gentiles into the redemptive plans of God, display the glory of God? 
James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on Ephesians, says, The church is a community of sinners redeemed by Christ and forgiven by God. If salvations were of works as we might like, and even the watching angels might have supposed it would be, the alienation would not have been removed. One person would still feel superior to another, and boasting in moral or spiritual merit would fracture the church and eventually sully heaven. But salvation is not achieved by works. God has achieved it and made it available to us by grace alone. Thus, boasting is excluded. And men and women of all races and nations meet as forgiven sinners within the church's fellowship. This is something that the angels might well look upon and marvel at. And the inclusion of Gentiles into the redemptive plans of God will result in the praise of our triune God for all eternity from people from every nation. And we get a glimpse of this in Revelation 7. Revelation 7, beginning verse 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The message that Paul received and delivered to the church was a grace-filled, far-reaching message. It is the same message that God has given his church today to be stewards of, to protect, to proclaim, to perpetuate. It is the message that holds high God's grace and exalts Christ. It excludes all human accomplishments, but it is available to all people. So take heart, weak and suffering saints. God will be glorified through his church as we proclaim his message. In point two, God is glorified through the ministers of the church. We're going to look at verses 7 through 9 here. We read this with uh, verses 7 and 8. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. So of this gospel, this grace-filled, far-reaching message, Paul was made a minister. A minister is one who executes the commands of another, a servant who obeys the commands of his master and king. Paul was not a self-appointed minister, but made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. God chose Paul for this assignment. In Acts 9, the Lord spoke to Ananias, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he, referring to Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I want us to consider the type of person God chooses as his ministers. The one he commissions to execute his commands, the commands given by the king of the universe. The Apostle Paul says that this grace was given to the very least of all the saints. In verse 8, this word very least can be defined as least in estimation of men, least in rank, least in excellence. It is to be less than the least. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spoke himself as being the least of the apostles. And now here he expands that and says, I'm the least of all the saints. And I believe we see Paul's genuine humility, knowing who he was in his former life and how undeserving he was of God's grace, and especially how undeserving he was of God's appointment of him as a minister. 1 Timothy 1, in verse 12, I thank him who, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. 
Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him for eternal life. Paul, a persecutor of the early church, converted by Christ on the road to Damascus, knew very well his high-handed sins against a holy God, which resulted in great humility in his life, knowing he was undeserving of God's grace in saving him and appointing him. And the Apostle Paul knew well also his ongoing struggle with sin, which resulted in a humble, lowly view of himself. We have Paul's own words of this struggle in Romans 7. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. He continues in that. Not only does the very least of all the saints point to his humility in recognizing his former sins, and present struggle with sin, but also a recognition of his weakness. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Weakness, fear, trembling. This is how Paul describes himself as a minister of the gospel. But why would God take weak, unworthy men and use them? Because God is glorified through the church as he, as he empowers them by his grace. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Paul was made a minister by God's grace and empowered by God's grace to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. God strengthened, enabled, and gifted Paul with divine power so that God's name and fame would be magnified through the church. The same power that God the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead was at work in Paul, the very least of all the saints. In Ephesians 1.19, Paul prays for the believers at Ephesus. He prays that they would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe. According to the working of God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Certainly, this was a a prayer Paul prayed for himself. This was the power that was at work in and through the weaknesses of Paul. Knowing his own weaknesses, he labored in God's power. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Herod Harold Horner writes in his commentary to Ephesians, on Ephesians, Paul was made a minister of the gospel and was able to carry out this awesome responsibility by the gracious gift of unmerited favor of enablement that was given to him. God does not give responsibility without the provision of his power to carry it out. In the end, God is to be praised, for humans can neither initiate nor accomplish the work in their own power. And that is exactly what we see God accomplishing through the weakness of Paul. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, fragile, weak vessels, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
And picking up in 1 Corinthians 2, after Paul talks, speaks of himself as weak and, and with them in weakness and fear and trembling, verses 4 and 5, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God empowers the weak to be ministers of the gospel, so that one's faith does not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God and his unsearchable, immeasurable wisdom. God is glorified through the church. His manifold wisdom is made known to the heavenly hosts as God empowers weak ministers by his grace. And God empowers weak ministers for a specific activity. Verse 8, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What for, Paul? Why was this given to you? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul was made a minister by God's grace and empowered by God's grace to preach and to bring to light. Preach means to herald good news, to proclaim glad tidings. Paul was made a minister and appointed by God to herald the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations. Why was preaching the task that God assigned to Paul? Why is it the task that he assigns us today? Well, because he's glorified through that task. God does all things for his glory. Listen to the words of 1 Corinthians 1. Beginning in verse 20. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, or the King James Version says, by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul was appointed not to show signs and miracles to the Jews or convince Greeks through earthly wisdom, but to preach Christ. The message that he received by revelation from God is the message he preached. And through this foolish message and the foolish task, in a manner of speaking, God would demonstrate that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul, Paul preached Christ crucified. Paul preached that Christ came into the world to save sinners. He preached the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. God's wisdom and power shine brightly through weak ministers empowered by God who preach Christ. And Paul was made a minister to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The word unsearchable here means incomprehensible, fathomless, the same word is used in Romans 11.33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. What a task given to Paul to preach the incomprehensible and fathomless riches of Christ. What are these unsearchable riches that Paul speaks of? Well, it is all the benefits that are showered upon those who who believe both Jew and Gentiles. It's every spiritual blessing that Paul wrote of in Ephesians 1, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to detail those blessings. To preach the riches of Christ is to preach that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Apostle Paul was empowered by grace to preach. also says that he was empowered by grace to bring to light. Verse 9, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Bring to light means to give understanding, to instruct, to inform. As Paul preached the immeasurable riches of Christ, the effect of the preaching upon the hearers by the work of God was understanding and enlightenment. Through the preaching of Paul, the blinders were lifted from the eyes of the Gentiles to the plan of the mystery hidden for ages. That is, as one commentator writes, the free grace and forgiveness in a new creation for all, you and Gentiles, who entrust themselves to the one mediator, Jesus Christ. The untimely born apostle was given light, and then he was appointed to bring light. 2 Corinthians 4, we looked at this verse earlier. I believe uh, Pastor Brian did. I'll pick up in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And having been enlightened himself, God empowered Paul, the least of all the saints, to preach the immeasurable riches of Christ and to bring to light the free grace and forgiveness available to all who trust upon him. But did God accomplish his intended purpose? Would a foolish message proclaimed by a weak minister accomplish anything? Well, we wouldn't be at this conference today if it did not. (laughs) And I want to just survey a couple of stories in Acts that show Paul's preaching, bringing to light, and the response of the Gentiles. Acts 13, I'm going to begin in verse 44 here. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul preached the unsearchable riches of Christ and brought to light to what is the mystery hidden for ages. And what's the response there? What's the effect of that? Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. You know well the amazing story of Paul's imprisonment in Philippi and through the preaching of Paul, the Philippian jailer, and his whole household being saved. Acts 16, verse 30. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in their household. Paul preached the immeasurable riches of Christ and brought to light the mystery that was hidden for ages. And what was the effect? What was accomplished? And he took them in the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he baptized, <clears throat> and he was baptized at once, he and his family. Then he brought them up into their house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed God. Paul, the very least of all the saints, empowered by God to preach, understood that all that was accomplished through him was through God's power 
was accomplished by the power of God. Paul's testimony that is Romans in Romans 15, verse 8, 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to full obedience by words and deeds, by the powers and signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. For I will not venture to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Paul, as a steward of the gospel, protected, proclaimed, and perpetuated the grace-filled, far-reaching message as he was empowered by God to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Through the message and ministers of the church, God gathers for himself those from every nation into the church and puts on display his manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. But will God accomplish these things through the church at Ephesus? Will he accomplish these things through our church today? Will God be glorified? Will his manifold wisdom be made known, known here at Calvary? These were questions the Ephesian believers were likely asking. They're witnessing their beloved apostle Paul suffer. An honest review of Paul's situation may lead one to believe that God had abandoned his plan. But Paul begs to differ, so take heart. Paul gives us three wonderful encouragements, and we're going to wrap up looking at verses 11 through 13. Take heart, weak and suffering servant, saints. God will be glorified through his church. Let me read verses 11 through 13 to you. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Take heart in God's eternal plan. Take heart in God's presence. Take heart in God's purpose and suffering. So encouragement number one, God's eternal plan. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's eternal purpose forever stands. It cannot be thwarted. His plans and purposes will not be frustrated in the ministry of Paul for the church at Ephesus or for our church today. Through the church, God's manifold wisdom will be made known. Isaiah 46.10, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Job 42, I know that you, you do all things and no purpose is your purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Ephesians 3.11 says the eternal purpose of God was realized in Christ Jesus or accomplished through Christ Jesus. The death of Christ did not annul the eternal plans of God, but accomplished his eternal plans. And through his death, God would be glorified as he gathers for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation through the grace-filled, far-reaching message carried by weak, grace-empowered saints. Take heart, God's plan to glorify himself through the church will not be frustrated or foiled. Encouragement number two is God's presence. The plan of God to use weak, grace-empowered ministers who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ would not end with Paul. This is God's design from the beginning of the church age to the very end. There would be ministers in Ephesus who would, who, whom God would choose to herald the good news of Christ. And through the ages, the mantle would be passed down to protect, proclaim, and perpetuate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And surely the Ephesians thought, if Paul was weak and inadequate, how much more am I? They were certainly right to think this way or feel this way. 
But but the Apostle Paul reminds them of God's presence. And we need to be reminded of this too. Because if we are honest, we are weak and inadequate to the task of heralding the gospel. Look with me at verse 12. In whom, speaking of Christ Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The Gentiles who were previously cut off from God, his promises, and his inheritance now have access to God through faith. Romans 5, in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Through Christ Jesus, believers need not cower in God's presence, but as children run to the presence of God in prayer, and rely upon his power to accomplish all that he calls us to. We can approach the king of the universe, the creator of all things, with freedom. Freedom in our approach, and freedom in speech. By the the indwelling spirit and the mediation of the Son, we can come to our Heavenly Father in prayer. We can approach his throne of grace and make our requests known with boldness and and confidence. We have God's presence available to us through Jesus Christ, and he will empower us by his grace and provide for us all that we need. Matthew 7, 7 tells us, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. What does the church pray for, knowing that God has given us a message to be perpetuated through the ages and proclaimed to the nations with the ultimate goal being his glory? Paul shows us how to pray in the coming verses in 14 through 19, so if you'll look with me there quickly. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We ask God to strengthen us through his spirit. Like Paul, we are the least of all the saints. We have all sinned greatly against our all-good and holy God and are undeserving of his favor towards us. And we are weak. We're not adequate for the tasks that we are called to. For consider your callings, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble, noble birth. So we must pray for God's empowerment. And we ask God for strength to comprehend and to know the love of Christ that we can be used as his instruments to carry this grace-filled, far-reaching message to our families, friends, community, and the world. And encouragement number three, God's purpose in suffering. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. As weak ministers proclaim the gospel to the nations for the glory of God, there will be suffering. And God uses suffering to accomplish his eternal purposes. Through, through Paul's suffering, his imprisonment, the gospel was advancing to the nations. God's manifold wisdom was being displayed to the heavenly courts. His suffering was for the glory of God and it was for the good of the church. Consider Paul's words in Philippians 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to, the, to advance the gospel. Paul's imprisonment by God's sovereign and providential workings served to advance the gospel. And Paul says that his suffering is for their glory. It's for the salvation of the Gentiles. It is for their honor. 
but how is this for the Ephesians' glory? I loved how one commentator put it. Because Paul is showing how his imprisonment is not at all a sign of failure of his gospel or of Christ's exaltation to all power. It is just the opposite. It is for their glory that Paul suffers tribulations in order that the power of God may be revealed in the apostles' weakness. Paul did not suffer because he was a criminal, but for your sakes. Christ had specially honored the Gentiles by appointing an apostle for them who would willingly lay down his life for their sakes in imitation of Christ. May God use our sufferings for the glory of our family, our friends, our community, and the world. So take heart in God's eternal plan. Take heart in God's presence. Take heart in God's purpose and suffering. God will use weak ministers that he, that he empowers by grace to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to the nations. And through the message and ministers of the church, God will be glorified. His wisdom will be displayed to the heavenly hosts. Let us pray. I'm going to pray Paul's words in the verses that we just looked at, 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before you, Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, according to the riches of your glory that you, you may grant to us be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that, you may be, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to you who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that's at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.